5:17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, and once again, welcome to Reality Church London. For those of you I haven't yet met, my name is Bijan, pastor here for our church. And as I say, every time we gather, we are one church gathering together in two places, some of us here in person, Central Foundation, and others via Zoom. And so to our Zoom attendees, hi, and thank you for being with us today. Now, we are in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, so let me pray, and then we'll get right to work looking at Matthew chapter 5. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for gathering us together today now to look at your word and then to come to your table. And as we now focus on what you're saying to us in your word, we ask that you would open our hearts, open up our minds to not only understand, but to be transformed by what we experience here in these verses today. We ask for this for your glory and for our good as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We began a couple of weeks ago, and for the past two weeks, we've focused on the character of those who follow Jesus. That is to say, what a disciple is. But now, starting today and looking forward to the rest of our time in the Sermon on the Mount, we shift. No longer are we focusing primarily on the character of a disciple, but now we're going to be thinking about their actions. So what is the conduct of a person who follows Jesus in the world? How do they relate to other people, and how do they relate to God himself and to their city? And so that's where we're shifting our attention. And today's sermon, this passage in Matthew 5, 17, it's quite crucial It's a dense passage of scripture. It's actually difficult to preach in one sermon because there's so much here. But here's the angle that I want to approach today's time. Here's the title for today's sermon. Taking grace seriously. Taking grace seriously. And that title comes from a sermon that I read that was preached about 60 years ago here in the city of London by a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And to his congregation, he asked this question. And this question has been ringing in my heart, in my head, since I first read it. And I'm going to share it with you now. He asked this question. Is it not true to say of many of us that in actual practice, our view of the doctrine of grace is such that we scarcely ever take the teaching of Jesus Christ seriously? I wonder, how seriously do we take the grace of Jesus Christ? And that question, as I say, has been ringing around in my head and heart, and now I hope I can make it ring around in your head and heart too. 
Do we take the grace of Jesus seriously? That's what this passage is about. And the angle by which we're going to approach that is through the topic of righteousness. You see it there in verse 20, Jesus talks about righteousness. And I think by focusing on that word righteousness and what it means, it's going to help us become a church that lives in this city taking grace seriously. And so here's the outline for our sermon today. First, we're going to see what is the kind of righteousness that you need. Then second, where the righteousness that you need comes from. And then last, what this kind of righteousness produces when it's at work in your life. So the kind of righteousness you need, where it comes from, and what it will produce in your life. So first, what is the kind of righteousness that you need? And first thing to do is define the word righteousness. It's a rich word. It's used all over the place in the Bible. But the simplest definition, righteousness means being right with God or experiencing God's rightness in the world. That's what righteousness is all about, being right with God and experiencing that rightness in your relationships and in your communities. And Jesus says, and I want to call your attention to verse 20, look at what he says. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will not get the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus said that to his original hearers, they must have been shocked. Hearing Jesus say that, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, that would have been like a bucket of cold water splashed in their face. Because in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were thought to be the most righteous people in the whole community. They were the people who were morally upstanding. The teachers of the law were the experts in the Bible. They're the ones that you went to when you had questions about God or about living in this world. And Jesus says, those whom everyone else thinks are the most put together spiritually, your righteousness has got to surpass theirs if you want my kingdom. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, think about all your pastors. Think about your worship leaders. Think about all the authors of the books that you read about faith. Unless your righteousness exceeds their kind of righteousness, Jesus says, you're not going to get the kingdom. So that was a shocking statement for Jesus to make all those years ago, and it actually is shocking for us. What is Jesus saying? The kind of righteousness that you need surpasses that even of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, yes, on one hand, we look at those leaders And we see that outwardly or externally, their conduct or their actions seem to be very moral. But their hearts have not been renewed by me, God says. And that's where their righteousness is defective. Their righteousness is manifesting itself only externally and in their actions, but it's not a new attitude or a new disposition of the heart. And so Jesus is saying what appears to be righteousness is actually defective in the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And the best place in the Bible to go and to get a picture of this is Luke chapter 18. So you don't have this in front of you, but you can jot it down and look it up later. But in Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives a picture of this defective righteousness of the Pharisee and the teacher of the law. And so Jesus in Luke 18 is talking to people who quote 
were confident in their own righteousness, and they looked down on everyone else. So that's who Jesus is talking to, people who were self-assured, and they were smug. They were looking down on everybody. And Jesus, looking at that crowd, gives a parable. He gives a teaching. And he says, there were two men who went into the temple to pray. One of the men was a Pharisee, but the other was a tax collector. Now, we've already said the Pharisees are thought to be the most religious people in their community. The tax collector was the complete opposite. They were despised. They were thought to be great sinners, wicked and evil and vile. And Jesus says, walking down Cooper Street on the way to Central Foundation for church is a Pharisee and a tax collector. And they go into church for worship. And Jesus describes the defective righteousness of the Pharisee. Listen to what he says. The Pharisee stands by himself and he prays. And this is the prayer of the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. You see, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. That's the prayer of the Pharisee. And Jesus looks at that and says, that's defective righteousness. That's righteousness that must be surpassed if you want to get into my kingdom. Why is it defective? Three things. Because of its source, its object, and its result. Let me unpack that briefly. It's a defective kind of righteousness first because of its source. Its source is works. That is to say the Pharisee thinks the way to earn acceptance and favor with God is by the things that I do for him. I fast, I tithe, and because I engage in all this religious activity, God must love me and God must bless me. And so he boasts of his religious accomplishments and he builds a righteousness based on his own performance. It's a righteousness based on works. Not only that, but consider also its object. What's the goal of this righteousness? It's for the Pharisee to attract praise and glory to himself. He stands by himself as if to say, look at me. And everybody walks in and says, oh my gosh, he is so holy. I mean, look at how he lifts his hands. Look at all this stuff. He is so holy. And the Pharisee is just basking in the praise that he's receiving for himself. So the object of his righteousness is self-glory, not the glory of God. And then, of course, what's the result? Pride. I thank you that I'm not like these other people. And he names them, those adulterers and robbers and tax collectors. I'm so much better than them. And friends, you know that your righteousness is defective if it causes you to feel smug and superior to people around you. And that's where this Pharisee was. And so Jesus, in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, with this picture of defective righteousness, says, yeah, outwardly they might look like they have it all together, but their hearts have not been renewed by my gospel. And so it's defective and it must be surpassed if you're going to get into my kingdom. So what kind of righteousness do you need? One surpassing that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's got to be deeper. It's got to be of the heart And it's got to be renewed by grace. So where does that righteousness come from? And this is maybe the heart of our sermon today. 
Where does the righteousness that you need come from? And here's the answer. I'm going to spend some time unpacking it. But the answer, it comes from the Bible. The righteousness that you need is defined in God's word. That's why when we read the passage earlier, do you see how much Jesus talks about the law? He talks about the law and the prophets. That's shorthand in Jesus's day and age. That's his way of talking about the Bible. And he's saying the righteousness that you need, it's laid out in the law and in the prophets, in scripture. What is that righteousness that's laid out in the Bible? And the answer is absolute perfection. You see, when you read the Bible, when we understand what God is teaching in his word, the standard that he's calling us to is perfection. But notice, not just perfection of external actions, but actually the attitude of our heart. So next week and for the next couple of weeks, here's what Jesus is going to do. And if you come, you're going to hear this. But for example, next week, when we come together for church and we open our Bible, here's what Jesus is going to say to us. You've heard it said, don't murder. And we would all say, yeah, murder is terrible. But then Jesus says, but I tell you, if you hate somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder in the eyes of God. Jesus says the attitude of hatred in the eyes of God is just as guilt-inducing as the physical act of murder. What does that mean? It means the standard of righteousness, the standard of the Bible, the standard of God's law is perfection, not just outward actions, but the inner attitudes of your heart. And the question is, if that's the standard, if even the Pharisees couldn't live up, the ones who everyone thought they're the most holy, the most put together, what hope is there for us? And the answer is, on our own, there isn't any. The standard of righteousness set out for the Bible, from the Bible is not attainable on your own. But friends, here is the wonder of Christianity. Here's the good news of the gospel. You're not on your own. Verse 17 is the key to the whole passage. Because in verse 17, listen to what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus is saying, I love you too much to tell you that the law is unimportant. Oh, don't worry about it. Just live how you want. Everything will be fine. Jesus says, I haven't come to do that. But instead, I've come to fulfill the standard of righteousness that's described in Scripture. Now, what does it mean to fulfill a law? You know, Jesus says, I've come not to minimize or abolish or destroy, but to fulfill the law. How do you fulfill a law? Well, think about it this way. If you're driving down the motorway, there is a law, a speed limit. And there are two ways that you can fulfill that law. You can obey it, or you can pay the penalty for breaking it. And that's it. The only way to fulfill a law is to obey it perfectly or to pay the penalty for breaking it. So you're driving down the motorway, you see what the speed limit is, and you say, I'm going to obey. And you obey. Meanwhile, everyone else is passing you. <laughs> the other way to obey that law, or excuse me, to fulfill that law, is if upon breaking it, and you are found to be guilty, you pay your penalty, you pay your fine. Cost this much, or I have to do this kind of community service, 
pay your fine, and then you're free. The law doesn't condemn you anymore. You're free to go. How do you fulfill a law? You obey or you pay the penalty. And Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. So what does that mean? The law, perfection, perfect goodness, perfect justice, perfect integrity, perfect love. Jesus says, on one hand, I've come to fulfill it by my obedience. And so Jesus, God in the flesh, comes into our world. And what does he do? His whole life is marked by perfect obedience to God's law. He is completely shaped by scripture. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is tempted by the enemy, the evil one, his adversary? What does Jesus do? In that moment, he completely and totally finds himself shaped by God's law. At every moment, leaning on God's word to act with perfect integrity, even in the midst of incredible temptation. At every moment, Jesus was completely shaped by the law of God. And he obeyed it perfectly. And so in Jesus' life, he is the law keeper. He is shaped by the word. He is honoring to God his father. The law keeper. Perfect obedience. And you say, well, what does that mean for the rest of us? Well, here's the thing. Even though Jesus in his life perfectly obeys the law, at the end of his life, Jesus goes to the cross. You know what's interesting about Jesus' death on the cross? I mean, there are a lot of ways Jesus could have died. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, remember, this is about the law. This is about God's standard of perfection. In the book of, the, in the book of Deuteronomy, we're told that one of the curses for being a lawbreaker, one of the most vicious ways that you can sort of experience the punishment for disobedience is by being hung upon a tree. It's this kind of shame-filled death that actually embodies, you might say, the breaking of God's law. And so here at the end of Jesus' life, even though he was the perfect law keeper, he dies the most shameful of all deaths, being hung on a tree, being hung on a cross. Why? Because on the cross, he was being treated like a law breaker. He was paying the penalty for your sin, for your disobedience. And so what do we have in Jesus? Perfect fulfillment of the law. He both obeys it in his life and he pays the penalty in his death. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. See, friends, this is the heart of Christianity because if you're a Christian here today, that means that you've been united to Jesus. You've actually been brought into a relationship with him in which his fulfilling the law becomes true of you. So on one hand, you are forgiven. You are a lawbreaker. We couldn't live up to the standards of God's perfection. But on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty. He actually bore God's judgment in himself for you. But it's not just because of Jesus's death are you forgiven of your sin, but because of his life, you're actually credited with his righteousness. So that when God sees you, he sees the perfect obedience of his son. That's what it means when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. To perfectly obey it and to die a death taking its penalty all for my people. And so if you're a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, if you surrender yourself to him, Jesus' fulfilling of the law 
becomes your fulfilling of the law. You are right in him. You are right with God because of Jesus. That's the righteousness that you need. It comes from Jesus. So, what do we need? A righteousness surpassing that of the Pharisees. Where does it come from? Jesus and his accomplishment, his perfect life. But here's where I want to conclude our sermon today. And here's what I hope is the application that shapes us as a church. If you have this righteousness from Jesus, this righteousness where you understand it comes from him because of his accomplishments, because of what he's done, what does it produce? What kind of person and what kind of church are we going to be if we are shaped by the righteousness of Jesus? And here's the answer. We're going to be a people that take grace seriously. We're going to be a people that take grace seriously. Now, why do I say it that way? Because there is a danger in Christianity of separating the law and grace. So some people overemphasize God's law. They think to themselves, the way in which you earn favor with God is by perfect obedience. And so they try really hard, and they work really hard, and they think, God will love me if. On the other hand, there are some who want to so emphasize grace that they forget about the law completely. And they say, it doesn't really matter how you live. God loves you. God accepts you. God will forgive you. Have a great time. And there's a lot of grace for the taking. That's cheap grace. That's not real grace according to the Bible. The grace that Jesus is articulating, the grace that he's actually setting forth here as the fulfiller of the law is the kind of grace which transforms you so that God's law becomes not a duty, but a delight. Let me unpack a couple of things. When we are taking grace seriously, what happens? First, we have a new love for God's law. The Bible becomes a joy, and we delight in the commandments of God. Why? Well, think about it. If God's law is a revelation of God himself, if the law, if the Bible tells us about who God is and what he values, then a Christian is someone who loves God's law because they love God himself. In other words, we don't separate the law from the lawgiver, but we see God's law as a revelation of what are the values of God's kingdom, the priorities of his ethic for life in this world. And we say we love God's word. We love God's law because we love God himself. And we want to know him. We want to honor him. In other words, when you've experienced the righteousness of Jesus, his fulfilling the law, then that means God's word now becomes for you, not a judge to condemn you, but a friend to guide you. God's law becomes a friend to guide us because it's a revelation of who he is. The second thing that happens when we take grace seriously, we have all new motivations for obedience all new motivations for obedience. Why is it that we would want to obey God? Why is it that we'd want to live sacrificially and serve other people and abstain from things that God says are not reflective of his kingdom and his values? Not to earn God's favor, but because we already have it. You see, you have a whole new motivation for obedience. The reason why we follow God is completely changed. And friends, this is so key. Because listen, if you 
obey God because you think that in so doing, you're going to earn his favor, one of two things will always happen in your life. Either you'll be filled with pride or you'll be filled with despair. You see, if you think God will love me because of how perfectly I obey him, then when you obey God and you're doing a good job and you feel like you're succeeding, you're going to become so prideful. And you're going to look down on people that don't live up to your standard. And you're going to feel smug and superior like the Pharisee. And you're going to say to yourself, why can't they get it together? Why can't they pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Pride. But on the other hand, if you relate to God based on your obedience, when you don't live up to your standard, when you look in your heart and you see all the ways that you've fallen short, you're ashamed, you're going to be filled with despair. And you're going to be totally insecure, not only in the presence of God, but also in the presence of other people. But when you understand that the motivation for obedience is not to earn God's favor, but because you already have it, because you've already been brought into God's family as a son or daughter, it completely changes your outlook. And so now we obey, not out of duty, but out of delight. And now we are able to become, as we'll see in just a second, a people of humility a people of joy, and a people of grace. So what does taking grace seriously do? Gives us a new love for God's law because we love the lawgiver. It gives us a whole new motivation for obedience, delight, not just duty. And then last, taking grace seriously gives us a whole new way of being a community. A whole new way of being a community. You see, a church that takes grace seriously is the kind of church that I want to be a part of. Because it's a place that's not filled with competition and judgmentalism. But it's a place of humility where we are filled with wonder that we get to gather together. It's filled with a group of people who look around and say, I can't believe that I get to be with brothers and sisters around the table of God, as we're about to do in just a moment coming to the table. A community that's shaped by grace, notice, is one in which, on one hand, it is safe to be broken. You see, if our community is shaped by God's grace and we take that seriously, then we expect this place to be a place filled with broken people, where it's safe to say, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm experiencing. This is how I'm weak. This is what I'm not proud of. And you feel safe to say that because you know that you're saying it to people who are also broken and not afraid to acknowledge it. But on the other hand, yes, as we acknowledge brokenness, on the other hand, we're a community taking grace seriously that says, but God's grace can change us and renew us and help us grow and become the kind of people that live sacrificially and joyfully for the good of others in our world. And so a community of grace is on one hand, totally safe to be broken, and yet at the same time, totally encouraging to grow and change. That's the kind of community that we can be if we take grace seriously. Earlier, we noted the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. If you remember, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. That's the prayer of a person who's not taking grace seriously enough. But listen to what the tax collector prays. This is the person who, as we see in the passage, has been shaped by Jesus's righteousness and is taking grace seriously. Listen to what the tax collector says. He stands off at a distance. 
He won't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus then looks back at his audience as he gives the teaching. He says, there it is, the tax collector and the Pharisee. Which of those do you think went home justified, right with God? And the answer, of course, is the tax collector. Because his righteousness was rooted in that of Jesus. And it became for him a way to take grace seriously. And so here's what we're going to do. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. and We're going to come to the Lord's table. This is a chance for us to feast upon the sacrifice of Jesus and to do what? To take grace seriously. To recognize that as we hold the bread and cup in our hands, our sin was so bad that Jesus had to die for us. And yet we were so loved that he was glad to do it. We get to come afresh to the righteousness of Jesus. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for this Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for Jesus' teaching about the righteousness that we must experience and the way in which, because of Jesus, we can be a community that takes grace seriously. So now in this time of response, we pray for a fresh filling, a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit. God, that you would make the righteousness of Jesus real to us today, that it would be ours so that we might be a community, that we might be people who live and take your grace seriously. That we would revel in our forgiveness, but that we would be renewed for service. Lord, right now, meet us, we pray. Change us, transform us as we encounter Jesus. We do this now praying together in Jesus' name. Amen.